you know, when I first tried to start learning Australian history at university, I was told that the University of Melbourne didn't study Australian history because nothing had happened. G'day, and welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happier, healthier and more ethical life. Our society puts a lot of emphasis on smarts, but not enough on wisdom. So this podcast seeks out wise people who can share their insights on passion, grit, love and empathy. We'll discuss everything from sport to parenting and hear the stories of some of the world's wisest souls. If you enjoy the podcast, let your friends know so they can share the insights. Now, let's dive in to today's conversation. At the age of 72, Bruce Pascoe has worked as an abalone fisherman, a teacher and a farmer. But since he was in his 30s, he's been writing. Yet it's a fair bet that most Australians only heard of Bruce Pascoe in the past decade, when his 2014 book Dark Emu became a blockbuster, selling more than a quarter of a million copies. He's won literary awards, been profiled by the New York Times, and just released a version of Dark Emu for young readers. Four decades after he became a writer, Bruce Pascoe has hit the big time. Bruce, thanks so much for joining me today on the Good Life podcast. Uh, it's a pleasure, Andrew. Thank you. So you grew up in, uh, in Melbourne and in uh, Tasmania and on uh, tiny little King Island. Uh, tell us a bit about your childhood and, and what got you interested in, in becoming a writer. Uh, I always lived in fairly remote places and but I was a reader and my grandmothers supported my reading by buying me books all the time. Uh, and um, I remember reading, you know, books written by uh, Jack London and uh, uh, William Faulkner and thinking that I, I loved them so much I, I wanted to copy what they had done. And, find the magic in how they constructed their stories. And so my desire to, to write started at a very early age. My family were all storytellers. Your, uh, your dad was a carpenter. Are you, uh, did you inherit from him the, uh, the handyman characteristics? Are you pretty good at building stuff? Uh, I'm, I'm handy, I suppose, but I'm pretty rough. And in terms of your uh, your own writing uh, writing background, it, it seems as though you uh, you came into into the world of writing uh, largely through short stories, uh, both through uh, editing other people's short stories and uh, and writing your own. Uh, what do you like about the the medium of the short story? Well, I was always um, impressed by really good uh, short story writers. At school, I read Alan Marshall, both write, um, and Teller as well. And I learnt from those people. And uh, I just think the form is really suited to um, particular stories. I write poetry as well, and that's a different medium altogether for a different purpose. I write novels, once again, it's a completely different um, style. A different purpose, uh, but yeah, stories were a favourite of mine, and it always disappointed me that there was no market for Australian stories 
uh, particularly when we have such a, a good, good long heritage in uh, storytelling, uh, including the Aboriginal storytellers of long ago. Um, but things like Smith's Weekly and the, the Bulletin uh, disappeared. I sent my own magazine called Australian Short Stories in 1982. And because of that, I, I became good friends with a large number of writers. And uh, it, was, um, it was just a wonderful journey. We published 65 issues of the magazine. We were reading 120 stories a week and um, really exciting time of my life, but also very difficult. And you were publishing some of the uh, the Australian greats, the uh, Helen Garners and Tim Wintons and so on, uh, very much in the uh, the early parts of their career. So in that sense, your your editing is uh, is intertwined with uh, with the rise of so many of the uh, the great Australian storytellers. Yeah, uh, Gillian Mears, um, people like that, um, published her first story. There's a large number of them, and some of them became friends. Most of them I never met but we're friends anyway. Uh, yeah, very, very interesting time. And, you know, I've always had so much admiration for Helen Garner and, and Tim Winton. Um, so to publish stories of theirs was a real uh, privilege. Around that time, you uh, started looking into questions of your own uh, heritage, um, having grown up, uh, assuming that you were, uh, you were purely of, uh, of, of British stock. What prompted that and, and what did you find? Uh, one of my uncles was telling me stories about our family, um, explaining that we weren't as white as we thought we were. And uh, I, you know, I was very close to that uncle and um, I travelled with him quite a bit uh, one way or the other. And so when I got a bit older, um, I began to ask questions about those families that he told me about from um, anyone I could find that had a, a similar um, heritage. And, um, and I gradually built up a picture. It was a mosaic really, um, rather than a picture. There were fragments of it um, over five states, but basically uh, we, uh, we had a, a Tasmanian heritage and a New South Wales Victorian heritage and South Australia as well and Queensland. It was a joyous time as well because it was enabled me to meet people tell me incredible stories about families. It became really uh, at the core of my life. How do you identify your ancestry now? Um, well, I introduced myself as... You and Bonarong and Tasmania, and that's how I always introduce myself. And it's been a topic of, of some controversy. Certainly uh, others have, have criticised uh, you, uh, sometimes from uh, not particularly well-motivated places. Uh, what, what would you draw out of the lesson for anyone else who is, is thinking about exploring their own Aboriginal identity? Um, how, how would you advise them to do that carefully? Um, I would be thorough. I would do good research. I would get involved with the community and follow every lead. Um, but 
I wouldn't uh, expect it to be all smooth sailing, but obviously living in Australia, uh, the Aboriginal element of our family is really important to me. And, you know, my life is, in, is with the Aboriginal community. So let's uh, dive into uh, into Dark Emu. Uh, you make a, a very strong case in Dark Emu uh, that uh, much past scholarship on Indigenous Australians has underplayed the degree of sophistication of Indigenous communities. Uh, and you talk uh, about uh, things such as crops and houses, irrigation systems and fisheries. Uh, you're not the first to, uh, to, to make this broad argument. Uh, Bill Gamage's Biggest Estate on Earth is another, uh, another book that does it. Um, but what's striking about Dark Emu is your very heavy reliance on European settler sources, um, those very first diaries of, uh, of early explorers. What made you choose to make that such a, such a focus of your research? Well, in order to research it, you know, you can't go past the explorer's journals uh, for information uh, because there's not much else in the contact history. But when I was starting to talk about these things in my writing, but also in public, there was so much almost anger that I, I would be talking about the Australian past in this way that I realised then that if I couldn't convince university lecturers uh, of the history, then the only possible way I could do it was you go back to the um, explorers' journals and diaries. They're considered to be the founder of wisdom in terms of Australian history. And um, in that way, I, um, I then made a conscious effort to quote from them um, because I, I thought that their evidence is irrefutable. You, you know, you, you go to a page number, you read the relevant passages, um, you look at the maps, you look at the photographs, you look at the uh, drawings in Sturt's case and Mitchell's case. Um, I don't know how you can deny what they said and how they talked about it. They might use strange language, uh, but I think the evidence is irrefutable. How did you find your, uh, your your attitudes were to those explorers? Because some of them are, you know, frankly, pretty unsavoury characters with uh, more than a streak of racism in the in there. Uh, and it's interesting to me, you know, you, you start off um, talking about Mitchell in quite positive terms, but then uh, later on tell us uh, about his uh, uh, prejudice and, and, and the fact that he is part of that, that project of the destruction of, uh, of Indigenous culture? Yes, it, uh, look, it's really, I'm a reader, so it was really enjoyable going through incredible hardships uh, because they didn't know the country. Uh, they didn't know how to get food or water. So, uh, you know, there's a, a, a boy's own element to their, their stories. But um, the more you read them, the more you realise they were just a product of British Empire and they had very little knowledge and very little respect of Aboriginal people. In fact, most of them were murderers. Uh, they were going out of their way to shoot Aboriginal people, some of them. And most of them shot many people. And I have regard for Charles Sturt because I think he's one of those. I may be incorrect. People 
argue with me that Sturt was involved as well, but I can't find evidence of that, so I don't talk about it. Whereas Mitchell shot a number of Aboriginal people and organised for many more to be shot. Um, and because Mitchell was there to replace the culture, not to admire it. And most of the explorers like Giles and people like that, they were in that boat. Um, the same as Lieutenant Gray in South Australia, Warburton in Western Australia. They were intellectuals, so they took a, a sort of a distant Aboriginal culture, but basically they, they had no respect for it at all. Absolutely. Let's go to some of the particular uh, cases uh, that you talk about. Tell us about the, what you uncovered about uh, Aboriginal crops. Well, I, I'd heard about Murnong from um, Aboriginal people in Western Victoria, and so I followed that story. But in following the story, I found out about the crops as well. And I expected them to be um, isolated examples, but in fact, every explorer uh, who wrote anything at all about Aboriginal culture mentions these crops, how large they were, how productive they were, and um, how happy and prosperous the villagers were that supported the harvest of these things. And so I was uh, continually stunned by my own ignorance, um, but also by how Australia had so easily information from its school curriculums. And then it raises the question of why. Why would you choose to eliminate something which would be fascinating to any student of history? Um, you know, school teachers all across the nation have this wonderful opportunity now to talk about something that is absolutely exciting. And, you know, you know when I first tried to start learning Australian history at university, I was told that the University of Melbourne didn't study Australian history because nothing had happened. You know, we hadn't had Guy Fawkes, you know. So when I began reading those, uh, those journals, I, I was totally bemused by the researchers would leave that information as fascinating it was, but also what it meant for the country. The standard story of uh, Indigenous Australians has uh, uh, them as being a, a nomadic people and so one of the other striking aspects of Dark Emu is your discussion about uh, Indigenous houses. Uh, talk to us a little about what you found there. Well, uh, not all Aboriginal people lived in houses nor villages, um, but a large proportion of the clans uh, had houses these towns are incredibly ancient. Um, pardon me, probably the most ancient uh, towns in the world. You know, way beyond what is found in uh, Turkey, supposedly the first village on earth. So I think this information is really important for Australians to know. But obviously, if this is the invention of the social experiment, then it's a valuable information for the world. And of course, the world only knows about Australian history from what we tell them. And uh, so when discussions of the, uh, are brought up, Australia's left out. You also have a, uh, a fascinating discussion of uh, irrigation systems. 
give, give us an example of, uh, of one of those. Well, I, um, once again, I was, I was amazed, you know, I, um, I, I knew of several Aboriginal wells where water storage had been secured. Um, I didn't realise how widespread they were and how complex some of the cities were. And, you know, the, if you dug them in the shape of Italy, that is a J shape, so that the water in the toe of the J was in shade, which is a really handy thing in a, in a desert. And so the water was shaded and cool, reducing the evaporation um, and had steps cut into the side of the well so that people could climb down in it and clean it from time to time. This is, this is engineering. It's not about hunting and gathering. It's an engineering enterprise. But I also read about a, a system where Aboriginal people had utilised the slope of a granite hill to redirect them in a fan across some crops they built at its foot. So they were utilising the runoff to irrigate uh, the crops that they planted. So it was a, an ingenious scheme. And, you know, once again, in explorers' journals, these things come up all the time. And um, one of the explorers, I think it was Warburton, I'm not absolutely sure, um, described Aboriginal people building a dam in a morning by using scoops and uh, shovels and the whole clan working together synchrony to create a dam. And, you know, I should grow up knowing about that construction. It's such an intrinsic part of Australian life. And it's, we, are, we are thrashing about at the moment about the Murray-Darling Basin and, you know, how it's failing us. You know, the basin is not failing us. We are failing the basin. And we need to study Aboriginal use of water, retention of water, storage of water, um, if we're going to be Australians. Yes, one of the fascinating bits of evidence that, uh, that I really appreciated in Dark Emu was your discussion of how the productivity of the soil uh, rapidly declined after European settlement uh, as, as you moved, uh, as sheep ate out the croplands, as they compacted the, uh, the light soils. As you write, the spongy soil grew hard, the runoff accelerated and different grasses dominated. It really does point to, to an Indigenous peoples who knew you how to manage that land far better than the white settlers. Yes, um, you learn a few things over 120,000 years if you study your country. And um, it's a real shame that the migrants to Australia um, 250 years ago didn't sit back for a little while and study what the old people had done. And because they, they talked in rapturous terms about the beauty of the country, its productivity, uh, the beauty of the creeks and rivers and uh, lakes and dams. Um, but then they, within weeks of arrival, they, they're destroying the very same thing. The tank stream in Sydney was destroyed in an incredibly depressingly quick period of time. Um, billions of years destroyed in a matter of weeks by overuse, improper use, 
And it's just a, a real shame that uh, we didn't learn enough from those people early enough. Today, I've been talking to the Murray-Darling Basin Authority um, because the, the ability of the basin to water the crops in, the, in that area is declining all the time. And I think instead of blaming the rivers for not having enough water, it's not the river's fault. It's not Australia's fault. It's not the climate's fault. It's the fact that we're trying to take too much water out of the rivers to grow the wrong crops. We should look at alternative crops. I'm growing a salad vegetable here now, which was one of the old people's vegetables, and it grows in saline water. This is going to be a boon to this country because we'll be able to get a salad vegetable out of saline water and it grows on its own. You don't need to fertilise it. You don't make on it like you do for a lettuce. It grows on its own. Uh, it wants to grow here. It's an Australian. We need to eat it in our salads. It should become the thing we all have on Christmas Day because it's Australian. This is our cuisine and we can grow it without adding one more drop of water or one ounce of fertiliser or pesticide for that matter. This is a boon for Australia. And the old Aboriginal people knew it. No one's eaten it for nearly 200 years. Um, and I, I talked to the older Aboriginal people about these plants and you know, I was speaking to, about a particular plant the other day and one of the, the members of the local Aboriginal, we grew up on that. Uh, we just couldn't get uh, fresh food and vegetables. And so my, my family uh, harvested the old plants because they were still available on the riverbanks and in the, in the forest. And I, I learned so much from those old people. There's so much Australia is going to learn about these foods and it's going to be um, environmentally very useful for us, but also economically in a drying continent to be able to grow a salad vegetable in salt water how useful is that? I think Australia is in for a very exciting time as um, we don't turn on Aboriginal knowledge. Bruce, I had two conflicting emotions in my head as I was reading Dark Emu. Uh, one was the sense that given the sophistication of Indigenous communities, uh, the murders, the dispossession, the uh, disease pandemics, were, were all the more awful because of, of what was laid waste to. And then after thinking that, I, I, I found myself thinking, but, but aren't, I, aren't I just taking a European approach to this? Isn't that emotion coming from a place of saying that a, a nomadic people is somehow less worthy than a more advanced society? Uh, how should I think about what you've uncovered in terms of the wrongs that were done? Is it really any worse to, to have destroyed uh, such an advanced civilization than it would have been to destroy the livelihoods of, of a more nomadic people, as, as the story would have had, had it a generation ago? Well, as a Christian nation, you know, we say prayers before parliament. Um, as a Christian nation, we should wonder about the the right to destroy anyone's culture, um, to destroy anyone's agriculture, 
for that matter. So I think we need to, we need to examine our own soul. It's not about destroying a hunter-gatherer society or a more sophisticated society than that. It's about destroying any society and how moral that is and how Christian that is. And I, don't, I can't find an argument uh, for um, saying that it is Christian to destroy anyone's society. Um, it's a really interesting question, um, and it's all to do with colonialism and the lust for power and money and land. Um, and that period of history when Europeans left Europe and started stealing land, that is a, a moment of aberration in, in human development, uh, which we need to repair. And a lot of Aboriginal people were what you would call um, nomadic, I suppose. But then Europeans are nomadic too. Um, all well-off Australians have got their holiday house in the mountains or down by the beach. We shift around too. We go to Artie's place for Christmas. We go um, to Uncle's place for Easter. You know, we shift around to do ceremony. We followed seasons. We followed crops but we also followed family. We love travelling. Aboriginal people love travelling too, and we still do it. And we still visit country, we still visit family. So it's not about nomadism, it's not about hunter-gatherers, it's about people and the rights for people to have land and to hold the land that was bequeathed to them by their grandmothers and grandfathers. So Australian is in this situation now of trying to explain colonialism. And there's no decent explanation. It's not about what we did then, it's about what we do now. And there's a lot we can do right now. Redress the wrong of the sentiment. I want to come to that in a moment, but first I wanted to ask you about your own career as a writer. Uh, one of the striking things that you see if you look at the careers of Aboriginal artists is that so many of them produce their, their best work late in life. Uh, what is it about your career tra trajectory uh, that has led you to, uh, to produce this, uh, this bestseller uh, in, your, uh, in, in your, your late 60s, uh, rather than as so many other writers do, uh, producing their, uh, their, their uh, best work in their 20s or 30s? Do you think you could have written Dark Emu uh, when you were a, a younger writer? No, no, I certainly couldn't have written it because I didn't have the knowledge. I was forced into reviewing my knowledge of Australian history by elders to whom I'd gone seeking help about my own family. And they refused to give me that help until I had written it. When I had done that, it led a decade journey of discovery, so there was no way I could have written it as a young man um, because I, I had to relearn Australian history. And so it's just um, you know, one of those things of human life that the older you get, the more you know. Uh, you Eventually you begin to forget it as well, but... Um, there'd be no point to life if you didn't gain knowledge. 
there'd be no point to having a long life and trying to protect life if we didn't learn more. And have you changed how you write over the course of your career? Uh, do, you, uh, do you write more in, in concentrated chunks? Uh, do you have a special uh, part of the house where you, where you, where you do, your, do your writing? As your, uh, have, do, you, uh, do you have a daily word target? I, I used to be um, uh, quite disciplined. I, I built my own uh, office. Uh, so that I could write with my library around me. Um, but then I bought the farm so that I could grow the crops. And I'm building an extension uh, where I hope to have my office. But because of the farming, my routine is all out the window. And uh, over, you know, because of COVID, my, my family is staying with me to avoid Melbourne and uh, so there's no such thing as routine in this house at the moment. Um, but also, you know, my writing is on hold to a certain extent because of my desire that Aboriginal people uh, don't get left behind again to make sure that Aboriginal people have some say in this industry. It's meant that I'm not writing as much now as I would like to be. I am writing a novel. I'm writing a new book about colonialism. Um, I'm writing a few stories and poems and things like that, but not nearly as much as I would like because I write a lot normally and I'm looking forward to getting this farm established. You know, I'm, I'm finding the farm work really hard physically. Um, and when you're physically tired, your brain is tired too. So I'm, I'm trying to um, save my energies, and I, I want to. I want to be able to go fishing again. I want to be able to go writing again. I want to be able to sit in the sun with a cup of tea, and those things are rare at the moment. You talked about uh, Australia's journey to reconciliation and about the importance of, of what you call including Aboriginal people into the Australian psyche. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, uh, the food is a really good example of it. I, I thought when I was writing Dark Emu, I was conscious that I was writing a story about food and I thought that it was going to be a really positive way of talking about Australian history because we're talking about food, we're talking about sharing it across a table, non-Aboriginal and Aboriginal together. And I thought that was a really good way of talking about Australian history and how we need to change it by understanding each other, enjoying each other's company and uh, sharing food. But it also meant that we had to understand that as the excitement of food accelerated and it really it's going like a freight train you know everyone loves bush tomato and lemon myrtle and all those things but we really haven't scratched the surface on the aboriginal diet no one uh, thought in their head about including aboriginal people in that economy they were all going to do it the bakers were going to bake the bread they were going to make a fortune out of uh, baking aboriginal bread not one of them thought about including aboriginal people and that's why I'm on the farm, because this is the way to make sure that Aboriginal people are included. And if governments are serious about Aboriginal health, 
education and employment, here's the answer. Get people, Aboriginal people back on the land, growing traditional foods, earning their money. How much can uh, can writing achieve, and uh, and how much to what extent do you need to have these practical examples, uh, such as uh, your uh, yams or your salad vegetables? Look, I think I think art comes first. Um, we imagine things long before we build them, and that's how humans work. We dream of these things, and then we go and do them. We have to we have to be prepared to imagine, and the our artists in Western society are those imaginers, but in Aboriginal society, everybody was an artist. Everybody danced, everybody sang, everybody told stories. And I think that is a way to be truly democratic. Get rid of the star system. Our society is so fixated on stars. We need as many people as possible to be involved in the culture, not sit, sitting back in the in the dark in seats that they've paid for watching the celebrities. You know, we, I'd, I'd like to see the world get rid of the idea of celebrity. I think that's a fabulous sentiment, Bruce, but it does make me wonder, how do you feel now about being something of a celebrity yourself? I feel bloody awful, if I can say that. It is easily the loneliest time of my life. Um, I feel like my life has been ruined um, by that celebrity factor. Um, it's no accident that I'm, I'm living even more remotely now than I was before I finished Dark Emu. I've migrated a kilometre upstream um, to an even more difficult place to get to, the Wallagra. And um, I do feel like it, uh, what a writer needs is observation. You need to be able to observe the world, so therefore you need to be anonymous. I've been anonymous all my life, so I've been able to watch the world without the world watching me. And, and now I've, my space is invaded uh, and my cover is blown uh, by, the, by the celebrity. Um, you know, Marshall McLuhan might have been right, you know, this might last only 15 minutes and then I can go back to being myself again. But, um, like I said, this is the loneliest period of my life. I guess you can't have it both ways, can you? If you're going to get your ideas out to a quarter of a million people, then in some sense the, the loss of anonymity is inevitably going to come with that. No, I regret nothing. Um, 30 years ago, I had Aboriginal people reading my stories and giving me new ones, and some they would say I wasn't allowed to tell, but there were older Aboriginal people who realised that I could tell a story um, that I had an education. Most of them are now gone, but they were my heroes and my supporters. Um, so telling the, these stories became my obligation and it is still my obligation. To have obligations is a, an honour and a privilege. It's, it's hard work. It comes with, you know, the exposure to people like Andrew Bolt but it is your obligation. There is no avoiding it. It is, it is your duty to your people and to your country and to yourself. Bruce, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Work hard, be honest, love people. They're the things that I've done and everything I do is because of my love of Mother Earth 
and all people, all people. I haven't met a human whose story didn't move me. So we need to be more generous toward each other, I, I believe. In the introduction, you said that um, I was an abalone diver. Well, I wasn't. I was an abalone sheller uh, in the abalone industry. But they were wonderful periods of my life because we were out at sea. And in a, in a sense, it was the only time in my life where I've been free. Um, but we, people want to talk about liberty and freedom and, um, you know, living the good life, but really um, a life without responsibility, without obligation is an empty life. And there are too many people living empty lives and that is why our world is in the state we're in at the moment. Because people aren't calling governments and armies to account and people aren't investigating a society of 120,000 years which conducted themselves. So there's use for an empty life when there's so much ignorance in the world. Bruce, what's something you used to believe but no longer do? I used to believe I would uh, die having a peaceful life. Uh, I no longer believe that. <laughs> when are you most happy? Oh... My family made me a possum skin rug with the family story on it. And that's on my bed. I sleep under it. And when my dogs have their 15 minutes on, on the bed at night, that is damn near the happiest moment of my life. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? Oh, I listen to country. I'm, I'm revived by country all the time and I listen and I watch really closely. I, my mother taught me to do that. My grandmother taught me to do that. Uh, the old, old people taught me to do that, telling me stories all the time. And, uh, the birds here, the animals here are so important to me and uh, they keep you modest, uh, they keep you focused and they keep you working because we do a ceremony uh, for the sun in the morning and I try to do that every morning of my life. It's not always possible in the city because people complain. But um, I do it every day here and I'm always revived by the first rays of the sun and the birds that greet it. And I realise I'm just one of the greeters. I'm just one of the creatures on earth that love the sun. What does the ceremony involve? Just respect for the sun our grandfather, and, but also for Mother Earth. It's a, really about Mother Earth and, um, you know, the energy that grandfather son provides for it. It's really simple ceremony. It's not ostentatious in any way. It's typically Aboriginal in that regard. Um, but it, it just revives your spirit and it focuses your brain. That's, that's what I've... Because you're talking about the sun, you're talking about the earth, you're talking about care of the earth. Um, your mind is focused on the earth, not yourself. You're taken out of the equation. You might wake up thinking about what you're going to do here and what you're going to do there. But as soon as you do the ceremony, it's about um, what I need to do for Mother Earth. Um, so I, I find it's revivifying and um, I, um, I plan to do it for another 30 years. 
Bruce, do you have any guilty pleasures? Richmond Football Club is one. Very occasionally I sneak a cigarette. Um, they're my guilty pleasures. And finally, Bruce, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Uncle Max Harrison. And my mother and father, who were the two most just people I've ever known. How did they impart their sense of justice to you? We always talked as a family. I'm a bit hard on the grandkids, you know, I keep on saying, no, you've got to say please, you've got to say thank you. And it's been a, you know, they're, they're resistant to a certain extent because they think I'm so old fashioned and out of touch. And I say, no, look, no one is your slave. And you are no one's slave. And that's what both my mother and father told me. No one is your slave and you are no one's slave. So if someone puts a knife down on my table, I always say thank you. That's how I was brought up. Because you don't want that person to be your slave. They have to thank grandkids about on Sunday. We went to pick up ducks. We drove for a long time. We had a long time to talk together. And I told them that story about slavery. What a what a horrible thing it is to the, for the world. And it's always associated with colonialism. Um, and how we have to rid ourselves of the temptation to make people our slaves. Bruce Pascoe, writer and farmer, thank you so much for taking the time to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Good on you, Andrew. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you enjoyed this discussion, I reckon you'll love past interviews with Andy McQueen, Linda Burney and Tim Flannery. I have a new book out at the end of September called Reconnected, a Community Builder's Handbook. It's co-authored with Nick Terrell, and you can pre-order it on the Black Ink website now. We appreciate getting feedback on the podcast, so please leave us a rating or a comment wherever you listen to the show. It really helps others find it. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.